Welcome to this week's episode of Flying Wall. I'm Alec. This week on the podcast, we have Paula Aniskoff. Before I tell you about her, make sure you follow us on social media. We're at FlyOnTheWallPod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can shoot us an email, FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, make sure to subscribe. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud. Wherever you get your podcast, we must be on that platform. So just whatever you're using, go ahead, click subscribe. Super easy. Now, Paulette. Paulette worked on the Obama campaign in 2008 doing field in Pennsylvania, then went over to the White House during the Obama administration, then took a stint at FEMA and came back to the White House during the second term as the director of the Office of Public Engagement. She's also a GU Politics Fellow this semester, and we're super lucky to have her. If you listen to the end of the podcast, you'll find out when her discussion groups are and what they're about, so stay tuned. Now let's welcome Paulette. Paulette Aniskoff, thanks so much for coming on Fly on the Wall. We're super excited to have you. Um, we want you to just get started a little bit talking about your career path. You worked in Obama world for a long time, starting on the 2008 um, campaign. Um, and as other people who we've had on Fly on the Wall who've, who've been on campaigns have mentioned, you know, campaigns can bring some of the highest highs and lowest lows um, of your career. So, so tell us a little bit about those. What, what were some of those high highs and low lows like during the 08 race? Yeah, um, there are so many on a campaign. Um, campaigns are really intense and you're with the people that you work with sometimes about 20 hours a day sometimes you also live with them so there are some high highs and low lows I would say um, interestingly I think everyone would assume that the highest high was election night which was awesome but I think the highest high was actually um, winning the Iowa caucus Mm -hmm early in January of 2008. So we had had people on the ground in Iowa for almost a year, probably about 10 months prior to that. So 2007 was a huge organizing year. And it was, um, it was just magic. It was magic because, uh, I mean, knowing a black man could win Iowa, we knew we potentially had a path to victory. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sort of the big, we knew that that's what people talk about. But the coolest thing was to be there and know that these young people had driven across the country, started and worked 100 hours a week for 10 months, and built something on the ground that they believed in, that their people believed in, and they just sort of brought a new thinking and... Um, a new effort to this that hadn't been seen in a long time. And it was just the most beautiful thing. It was a really, it was very magical. And how about the lowest lows? Um, there were a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say uh, two that stand out in a big way. One was the Ohio primary. Uh, it wouldn't stop snowing. The hotel we were in had bed bugs. Um, Everyone pretty much cried most days because it was freezing and miserable and we had no idea. Our goal was to just keep it from not, keep ourselves from not losing by more than 10 points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> keep it to single digits. Um, our cars were broken into every day. I mean, it was just, everything was miserable and we just didn't know when the primary would ever end. Um, and Hillary did really well both in Ohio and did better than expected in Texas. And we just thought, oh my God, there's so much more to go. Yeah. Uh, so that was just hard. Um, the other in Pennsylvania, which is where we ended the campaign, 
I would bet I have probably nine deeply toxic stories about racism there Mm -hmm. that just scared the hell out of me and woke my naive self up to the amount of racism in a state like Pennsylvania. It was very intense. Yeah. So it's not all the Iowa caucus victories. There's some pretty pretty brutal moments of the campaign, too. Definitely. Uh, uh, so, you know, not every day uh, is a super high high or super low low. Uh, so sometimes it's just kind of humming along. So tell us about more like your average day, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Um, average day on the campaign. Yeah. Average day on the campaign was generally 18 hours long. Um, a lot of it with me being a get out the vote director or a field director was me analyzing data that was coming in from the field and trying to make some micro adjustments on what the upcoming week would look like. And for long periods of time, I mean, everyone thinks of there being thousands and there were actually a million volunteers in the Obama campaign Mm -hmm. overall, but a lot of times it's just like grinding it out every day and people don't want to pay attention until after Labor Day. So you look at the numbers, you talk to your deputies, you get information in from the field, and you just, you make these sort of small adjustments as you go strategically to sort of link to the larger vision of where the numbers need to be. And it feels, you know, in the end, like hope and change, but there's just a lot of data crunching and micro-targeting and um, talking people into working harder when they're already working 100 hour a week. So it's a, it was a massive management and data job that I had. Um, and you know, when people are working that hard for that long, there's just a lot of stress on them. And um, I think it's important to provide really good leadership in those situations. Mm-hmm. So after uh, the campaign, you went to a pretty, you know, another pretty fast paced job at the White House. Uh, you're the priority placement director. Now, prior to meeting you and talking to you about it, to my discredit, I didn't know that job existed. Um, so, does. so for others in my boat, uh, tell, us, tell us about that job and, and what you did. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a fascinating job, which I didn't know um, when I got it, <laughs> um, which is basically an extension of transition where a team of people in the White House is trying to figure out Based on President Obama's agenda, who do we put into the cabinet agencies? Who runs them? Who supports them? Um, if If he is going to have a specific kind of diplomacy, who is the best person at the State Department? If he really wants to make sure that we're reaching out to Um, all Americans and thinking about rural area, who is the best possible person to put in the cabinet for USDA? Tom Vilsack is the answer, by the way. Um, And so it was thinking about his goals, the type of leadership, the type of management, but then also considering all the other things that were really important. You know, you need, um, there's a lot of pressure from the Hill to hire people. There is um, certainly want to make sure our entire appointee set looks like the United States, right? When you consider diversity of every kind. So it is this very difficult balance of 85 priorities coming in at once and trying to determine how you assemble the best team in each. And the good thing for me was that I hadn't worked in government before. And this job taught me more about government and agencies and sort of what the executive branch does. So I have, uh, I'm a very good Trivial Pursuit partner now. Um, (laughs) uh, And it's just an unusual bit of knowledge to sort of 
have and it's um hopefully useful for something in my future life <laughs> <laughs> um and then so you did that job for about a about a year yeah um, and then went over to fema and then came back to the white house during the second term as the director of the office of public engagement um, where you, you worked on a few initiatives. One of them was that you spearheaded President Obama's initiative to prevent sexual assault on campus on college campuses, um, so obviously something relevant to students here at Georgetown. Uh, so tell us, tell us about how that initiative came about and sort of how, how it worked behind the scenes. Yeah, it's really awesome. I, um, I give an enormous amount of credit to both my team members who pulled this off, um, but also to a woman named Lynn Rosenthal who had worked in the domestic violence space for many years and um, also to President Biden, who Vice President Biden, who really wanted to have an office in the White House dedicated to violence against women. Um, it is just an issue that he has worked on for a huge part of his career. So uh, the amazing thing about this campaign is that it is one piece of the story of survivors of sexual assault on campus demanding that the government do something protesting outside of the Department of Ed. Um, it really threw us for a loop because we thought we were doing a lot mm -hmm. and all we could. And clearly there were a lot of voices and people that felt left behind. Uh, when they went to the protest, um, our my boss, Valerie Jarrett, and Tina Chen, who um, the two of them headed up the Council on Women and Girls, decided with Lynn Rosenthal that they would bring these women in meet with them, try to understand exactly what they had gone through, and really try to understand the gaps the federal government had in their response. So um, they had a, a series of, of ideas and things that they thought they could do better. They came up with a report after a few months of what this would look like. And one of the takeaways was that we really needed to start changing culture. It was not just a sort of legal or regulation change. And um, the It's On Us campaign, who um, the It's On Us campaign, which started out with sort of a launch video of a bunch of celebrities getting on board and, and the vice president and President Obama speaking about it, ultimately was a great launch. But the best thing about it was that 500 campuses picked up um, the campaign and started doing their own campaign on campus. Mm. And you can have something launched out of the White House, which is great. But ultimately, is it changing hearts and minds? Is it happening on campuses? And the truth is, I think Department of Ed plus the White House plus the actual students were the real anchor to make some change and make sure that less people every day are getting sexually assaulted. So it was a very, it was a very exciting thing. And I'm sure all these student activists listening to the podcast will be um, excited to, you know, hear about that and hear about the sort of power of student activism. And it still exists, which mm -hmm. is one thing. When the White House went away, It's On Us is still there. Uh, visit itsonus.org um, <laughs> and take a look. Um, so another big crisis that you worked on while you were in the Office of Public Engagement uh, in a separate space was, well, I shouldn't say another crisis because that one, you know, that was, that was more of an initiative. This one was more of a response to the fact that healthcare.gov did not work. Um, so we've talked, we had, just to plug a previous pod, we had Brad Jenkins and a few other uh, members Yay. of the Office of Public Engagement on the podcast uh, last season, so go back and listen. Um, but th this was a huge deal for this office, uh, for the entire White House when it happened. So tell us your reaction that first day when you heard the website went down. What was that whole day like? 
I was so unbelievable and so deeply depressing. Mm-hmm. My team for about two years had been prepping for this day. I had let my team know that 75% of their job was to make sure we were covering all of our bases, but ultimately 75% of our job every day had to be prepping for this day. Healthcare was going to be the president's legacy, but more important than that, it was going to get people healthcare. So we had to um, make sure that people understood it, make sure that people signed up. And if people didn't sign up, it would fail. I mean, there, this absolutely is one of those things where because of the law, a lot of young and healthy people have to sign up or it will implode. So um, I was terrified. I was embarrassed. Uh, I knew the president was going to be pissed. So, um, you know, that day was, it just felt like, okay, this sucks, but by tomorrow, they'll have it working. <laughs> and these days just kept dripping drip dripping and it was just torture I mean every day and and you know I'm not a tech expert and you kind of assume that there have to be some people who know what the hell they're doing that Mm -hmm. are going to immediately fix this but it wasn't built well enough um so it was going to be a longer problem um and then so that so that was the first day and then how did the approach the office's approach to addressing the crisis evolve uh as time went on yeah, well, you know, I think the first few days we were just in total shock and hoping that someone would fix the frickin' thing. But um, our office is the only office in the White House that is, uh, for lack of a better term, like the real people connectors. So we connect to people outside of government and talk to every type of um, organization and person outside in the real world. So um, we assembled our team and we said... You know, there are other things outside of the website. So how do we do this? How do we keep this going? I think people were hugely disappointed. We had signed up a thousand organizations to help us promote healthcare.gov and signing people up for healthcare. So we just had to quadruple down on the other ways, you know, via phone, in person, et cetera, and make sure that all of those organizations had what they needed to actually help get people the information they needed without the website working, which was just, you know, felt totally insane. But we muscled our way through it. We immediately started signing people up in other ways because people had been waiting years to sign up for healthcare. So they started to, they started to sign up in other ways. Um, And then ultimately, uh, because of some very, very smart engineers who were willing to dedicate their time and, uh, Come into the come into HHS and fix the website. They got it done. Um, and so then after the after that was addressed and uh, the second term ended, you left the White House. Um, you started working for or continued working for President Obama. Um, and Politico called you President Obama's de facto post presidency political director. So tell us uh, about the work you did for him after you left the White House. Yeah, Ooh, it was good. Um, <laughs> You know, right after the White House ended, to be really blunt, I mean, I I saw the political landscape and knew, we all knew, that there was a role for President Obama. And in my mind, when I was at the White House, I just thought, Hillary Clinton will take this torch and run with it. But obviously it didn't work out that way. Mm -hmm. And so he had to figure out how he wanted to engage, and we needed to determine a best plan for that. 
how to use his time politically, how to utilize his 16,000 alumni politically and think about what, what role they want to play. Um, think about sort of his overall political network and kind of put together a thoughtful plan that would help us win back the midterms. So my goal was to take a look at the midterms, kind of make a calendar throughout those two years that led up to obviously helping win. And we really wanted to take back the house. I mean, he was dedicated to that and we put together a plan for him, his time, um, his endorsements, which we knew would carry a ton of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, Endorsed a Georgetown alum uh, from last year, Will Haskell, up in uh, Connecticut, who's now a state senator. He just graduated last year. Oh, that's, that's so good. And, and, you know, maybe I'll run for office in two years and get, and get a President Obama endorsement. That'd be pretty cool. Definitely. Just kidding. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. We, we need people who don't want to run to run. That, that is the whole trick. Um, so, you know, thinking about what the midterms needed and what the Democrats needed, and the, I think the really interesting thing about President Obama is that he sees things um, with the history of centuries and not just looking at the day-to-day news. And he did not want to step in and own the space. He felt like he needed to have a light touch and then really utilize his time right before the midterms as much as possible to win. So he was dedicated to winning back the house, but also wanted young leaders to have the space to step up. And um, one thing that tends to happen, uh, and we've got, you know, this has happened many times before, is that when he steps in, others step back because they're like, he's got it. And he really wanted other people to step up. And we saw this sort of young, diverse, amazing talent starting to come up. And so we had to really figure out what the line was, you know, what would be the things that he would spend his own time and our time on, um, and what would be most impactful to winning back the house. And that means he's not necessarily out there every day, but to really pick those moments that would be the most influential, the most meaningful. Um, and, you know, I think that rubbed some people wanted him out, it rubbed some people the wrong way. Some people wanted him to be out at the front of every protest. And other people said, I think it's time for him to move on and let others. And, and so we were trying to really land somewhere in the middle, but ultimately um, taking back the house and, and making sure that we have some checks on our government functioning was very important. So one last thing we like to do here on Fly and Law Before I Let You Go is uh, the lightning round. It sounds like um, we got a couple, I think, quick questions for you. And first thing that comes to mind um, okay, uh, number one, if you could go back and do one again, would you work on a campaign or at the White House? Oh my God. Oh! Under a president of your choice, or a candidate of your choice. Um, there is something about serving the White House that obviously is so hugely appealing. Um, to actually serve your government is an amazing thing, and I have kids, so campaigns are hard. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, and then other than winning the Iowa caucuses... Uh, favorite day working for Obama campaign or White House? One of the highest highs and lowest lows days that immediately comes to mind is the day that he went to the Charleston funeral. That same day, Supreme the Supreme Court announced their decision on gay marriage. And that night, uh, we lit up the White House rainbow. And mm-hmm. I was eight months pregnant at that time. 
And I just remember thinking, wow, like my kid is going to be born into a much more loving world. And this is the kind of big deal day that only President Obama could do in this right way, singing Amazing Grace, being there for marriage equality. Um, it, it was a, just a symbol of all the things that could go right. And it was really powerful. Um, and last thing uh, before we let you go, you are uh, a fellow here at Geopolitics this semester. Um, we've loved having you and you still have a few more discussion groups to go. Um, so tell us what the topic is, when they are, and of course the most important thing for college students, the free food. What do you have? <laughs> uh, definitely. Um, so my discussion group is basically about if you want politics to change, how does one person or a group of people do that without necessarily being the lawmakers? You know, how do you how do you press the White House? How do you press Congress? How do you move a, an issue forward culturally? And I think that's something we all need to be thinking about and being more civically engaged, but knowing the tools and how you do them. So coming up, uh, we're talking about criminal justice reform and police brutality. We are talking about uh, gay marriage and sort of using that example to showcase how you can take those tools and do other things. And then we've got one class where we'll sort of hit the top line of all of the tools that we sort of looked at throughout this semester and how people can use them um, ideally against Donald Trump, but they can be used for anything um, on whatever issue you want to advocate for, with or against anyone. It's just uh, what tools you have in your toolbox to make a change. Definitely. Well, Paulette, um, thanks so much. We appreciate you coming on uh, Fly on the Wall, and we're excited for the rest of the semester with you here at Geopolitics. Thanks so much. That does it for this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. As a reminder, Paulette's discussion groups are 4 to 5.30 here in the Geopolitics office on Thursdays. Come by, eat some free food, talk to her. She's great, as you can tell uh, from the interview. She's a wonderful person to talk to, so come on by. And last but not least, make sure to follow us on social media one more time. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll follow you back. Shoot us an email, flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com, or subscribe to us right there on the platform that you're listening to us right now. Thanks again.